We're in Titus chapter 3 today, so I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and we'll, we'll read uh, the section that's allocated to us for today for consideration. So Titus chapter 3, and we'll start from verse 1. Paul says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. As we've been working our way through Paul's letter to Titus, which is also a letter to the churches in Crete, as we thought, the letter he received would have been read in public for his encouragement and instruction, but also for the church to hear it. We've seen that Paul's letter, as so many of his letters, are intensely practical. And that practical side of his teaching always has as its foundation the doctrines that are glorious about God. He's instructing Titus, a local leader and an elder among the churches of God on the island of Crete, so that the churches would be spared uh, from error and trouble that can come in. And what we've seen in terms of the practicalities of what Paul keeps reminding Titus and the others in the churches in Crete that would have been listening in, is that the, the doctrines of Orthodox Christianity and the things that Paul lays out in very a few words quite often, but so rich in their, in their depth and their um, meaning. The doctrines of Orthodox Christianity that he expresses are the basis for a way of life that is heavenly in its origin and also in its expression. It begins there and it continues from heaven through the believer. And it's those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation from sin and its effects that are helped by the grace of the power of God that is ongoing by the indwelling of his spirit. And we're to live this practical life that comes out of what we know of God and know about God and know of ourselves and what God has done for us that, that we know that we have put our faith and our trust in, that that is what then helps us to live in such a way that commends the gospel, the good news of God to other people. And Paul continually goes at this in his letters. He's already told the people in, Tite, in Crete and Titus as well that they must live differently because of the gospel. We've already been circling around this. And he's saying that a genuine conversion, and conversion means a turning around, a genuine conversion in the life of a genuine believer of the Lord Jesus will naturally result in a different way of life 
in a society that's as notoriously immoral as the one that the Cretans were living in, uh, but no less for us today, wherever we live and here in Manchester. And society is much the same. The Christian's life is to be visibly different. And Paul's told us it needs to be visibly different, different in the home, in the church, and in the workplace. He's taken us through those three already. But Paul's not done yet. And this section moves us on to consider the Christian's life and conduct in wider society. So being a Christian in society is really what we're thinking of. Do you remember the Lord Jesus in his prayer in John 17 when he was praying to his father? He recognized that he was going to be leaving his disciples and returning to the father. But he said for those that were remaining, he was praying for them. That as they were remaining in the world, that they would be helped by God and protected by God. Protected from the evil one. The Lord Jesus in his prayer said, I'm sending them into the world in the same way, Father, you sent me into the world. So Christians, true disciples of the Lord Jesus, the moment of salvation are not suddenly removed from this world. We're saved so that our different lives might be lived in this world. And we're not to be isolated from society. There are some who will take themselves off and live in isolation. And the impact maybe is very minimal. Some people look and either laugh or they'll, they'll laud it and say, well, that's a good thing that they're devoted to this. But Jesus in his prayer knew that disciples were going to be in the midst of a society that was corrupt. They needed protection from the evil one and they were to live their transformed lives out in the reality of that setting. So this applies to us. We know where we are. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we live in a corrupt society that is becoming ever more corrupt. But Paul's instruction comes to us to consider our lives. He says in verse 1, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities and to be obedient and to be ready to do whatever is good. Here's one thing. The major task of um, leaders or teachers of the church is primarily to remind. We're not about trying to find something new and fancy from the scriptures. And quite often if we do find something that's new and fancy, we really should have checked the history of the interpretation of the Bible that has preceded us for the past 2,000 years. Because if it hasn't been there before, then most likely it's wrong. So we're not about something new and fancy. We're about the reminder of what is glorious. That is, in its sense, in a sense, the simplicity of the gospel, but in all of its depth as well. So we who have that responsibility, the major task is to remind us all. And then as those who are receiving it, is to be reminded and to say, thank you for that reminder, God, of what you've done for us. Paul is saying here in Titus chapter 3, as we have it, that the Christians would be characterized by loyal subjection to the legitimate rulers that were in place at that time. We've covered this not so long ago in Romans 13, if you remember. We're there, Paul wrote to the Church of God in Rome, the governing authorities are established by God. So we have to recognize that the rulers that are over us in society are God-ordained. And that's why Paul, in his first letter to Timothy, urges Christ followers to pray for all those who are in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So to recognize that the rulers are in place and they are ordained and in place by God, 
and recognizing that then to live in loyal subjection under them, all the while praying for them so that we might live peaceful and quiet lives. Not just us, but everybody in society. That's an outworking of the transformed life of the believer. But Christians are to be exemplary in upholding the rule of law. And as Paul says here, unready or eager to do what is good. A repeated theme of his letter to Titus is the reality that we have been saved for good works and that we're to be a people zealous or eager for good works. We're to be ready for them. And we're ready for them not when we're together in a church like this, when in a sense we are isolated from the society around us, but we're ready for the good works and the living out of the transformed life in the society we're living in. And what does that look like? Verse 2. To slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. This is all about relationships. So we're not isolated, but we're in there. And we're in relationship with people at various levels uh, every day of our lives. They might be some passing brief relationship that we'd have. You might not even say it's a relationship, but it's an encounter. But anyway, there is something of an interaction between us and others. It is expected of us, on the basis of God's word, that our interactions and relationships will be characterized by these things that Paul has said, which were the complete antithesis of what characterized the people in Crete at the time. Um, We might say is the same for us. It's in contrast to what we see in the world around us. Christians are not to slander. The, The word really means to discredit others. I wonder if Paul really has in mind here the governing authorities. He says to slander no one, but he's just mentioned it in terms of being uh, in subjection to the ruling authorities. Uh, We're not to be people who moan about the government. There's a tough one. Christians, rather, are to be peaceable with all people and considerate and always gentle. You know, probably the, the best word to describe that is the word courteous. Try and think of synonyms for courteous and you end up with all of these. But courteous seems to, to grab it all. We're to be courteous people. question comes to us quite plainly. As those who are transformed or claim to know the transforming power of God in our lives, are, are we known as those who are courteous? Or are we the rude ones and the discourteous? Or are we the ones that will see that there is a need? Ready to do good, we will see that there is a need. And if it's even just holding the door open for somebody, we'll be the ones that will characteristically do that for others. I think Paul is getting at that. And notice that it's to be without exception. No one, to slander no one, to be peaceful and considerate and always to be gentle toward everyone. The hallmark then of a Christian, even in the face of opposition, or when we might be on the receiving end of abuse or some difficult interaction with people, whatever the situation might be, or even if it comes to threat because of our faith, or maybe it's just a minor disagreement over something or other that happens in life. To everyone, we are to display these characteristics. But if it does get really difficult for us, and it could go this way in no short time in our country with the change in laws and so on that would be marginalizing even more the Christian faith and making a lot of what we say considered to be hate speech. It it can get to the point where we will face 
an element of persecution and maybe abuse. I was taken in my mind to 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 23, where it says, Where Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. And we say, well, yes, that's the Lord Jesus. He was sinless. But Peter was making the point that in the face of opposition and abuse, he did not commit sin. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now, that's hard, isn't it? But for the believer, it should actually be a natural thing to withhold the desire that is still there because of the old nature that we would retaliate. And we instead hold that back and rely on God to grant the grace and know that God is the one who's watching all things. I was thinking as well about the amount of time that we can waste on criticism, on talking about other people and discrediting them, on having arguments with people, verbal sparring, even on matters of faith, that really is a waste of time. Instead, we're to be ready to be doing good and to do that in society. Think of it this way. Rather than being condemning of the society around us and the culture, and we're going to see why we might be that way, rather than being condemning, we're to be characterised by compassion because Jesus has left his followers here. With his prayer to his family, they would be protected from the evil one. As those who were sent into the world were on mission on behalf of the Lord Jesus to speak of him and to live him out. And that's to live out compassion. Why? Look at verse 3. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. For we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. The NIV doesn't have the conjunctive at the start of this, uh, this verse. The conjunctive is the simple word for or because. Other versions do have that. It's because at one time we too were foolish. So what has come before in terms of no slandering and being courteous? It's because we once were this. There's a reason why we're to behave this way to other people. Because Paul is reminding the people in Crete of what they once were. And the message comes to us today of what we once were. Now for some of us, having, and thank God for this, having been brought up in Christian homes, we might not be able to say, well, that's the way I lived in the description that's given here. But actually, if we do scratch the surface, we will see um, the heart motivations that are in there and even still that are there in us. For at one time, we too were foolish. Now, this is not the absence of um, intellectualism or not having intellectual capacity. That's not the foolishness that's being spoken of in the scriptures. It's moral perversity. It's in the face of knowing what is right and wrong, choosing what is wrong. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. The rains came down and the floods came. Whoop. Yep. Although they claimed to be wise, Romans 1, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. That's the foolishness that is in mind here. Now all of us 
have had that at some point in our experience. The foolishness of knowing what is right and wrong, but yet choosing that which is wrong because we are slaves of sin. Those verses help, I think, us to understand why the most brilliant academics and intellectuals in the world are fools when faced with the evidence and they reject God. The next in the list is disobedient. You know, we're naturally disposed to disobedience, aren't we? One time we were disobedient to God and the law that was written on our hearts, as Paul writes of it in Romans 2, and on our consciences, we were disobedient to it. Disobedient to the laws of the country. Come on. Well, we are at times. Disobedient to parents and disobedient to authority figures at school or at work and in any other setting. We don't need to teach disobedience. We don't have classes for kids on disobedience. It comes naturally to the sinner. Instead, we try and teach obedience. Why is that? It's because we're bent in on ourselves, as Luther said. We're so twisted in on ourselves as sinners. The next in the, the list of unsavory characteristics that Paul points to is that we were deceived and enslaved. And by all kinds of passions and pleasures we were enslaved. The pleasures there is the word hedone in the Greek, which is from where we get the word hedonistic. So that's the strength of the word. Enslaved to this thing. And this is this point about sin enslaving us. We're so turned in on ourselves that we do the opposite of what God says we should do. And there's a deception that comes with it. This blindness, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So therefore we're compassionate to people. I'll say more on this in a minute. You know that I, I've had to visit the Northwest Lung Centre at Withenshaw recently. It's a cancer centre and you go in there. Not that I have cancer and I thank the Lord for that. But you go in there and then you come out and you see nurses and doctors intelligent people standing outside that very place and smoking a deception it's a foolishness it's an enslaving and to a, a way of thinking that just doesn't seem to add up i think what i've been helped with in recent times is is what paul says in ephesians 6 about putting on the armor of god because he says in verse 12 our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You know what he's describing there? He's describing the spiritual reality of the forces that are at work behind the structure and the basis of culture and government and so on. And the framework through which people think. And it's set against God. So when we're encouraged by Paul to be courteous, and kind and good to people. When sometimes we would probably be condemning. Paul says don't forget what you were once. But also you have a compassion for these people. Who are caught up in viewing the world through this grid. That is so anti-God. That they can't see it until God will step in. In his mercy. And show them. Show them the problem. And then show them the great solution in the Lord Jesus. So knowing that an individual with whom I might have a difficult encounter or relationship is operating through that grid of cultural knowledge 
that is set against God and there's a spiritual realm that is at work behind all of that, does that not help us then to be compassionate with people? He goes on to speak about them being in malice and envy and being hated. The word actually means loathsome. Imagine being described as loathsome. You're loathsome. It's not something you go up and say to somebody. I hope you don't anyway. And hating one another. You notice it just seems to slip down the slope here with Paul. It gets worse. I've mentioned hate speech and hate crimes and so on. The Citizens Advice Bureau website says the penalty for a crime. So if somebody puts a brick through your window, this is their example. If you can say that that was done because of some hatred towards you because of race, religion, sexuality, disability, transgender. If you can pin that on somebody and it wasn't just a random act of somebody throwing a brick through a window. The penalty for a crime is more serious if it's a hate crime. So if there's any, anything in there that is considered hatred, then it is seen as serious. But Paul says, we're the very people who are loathsome to one another and who hate each other. The word here is, there's a word that uh, Paul uses in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, and he speaks about people in the last days. He says they'll be lovers of self. Philautos. We'll see why that's important in a moment. Philautos. Phil is the form of love and autos is just for yourself. When we're all about loving ourselves, here's society pumping that at us. When we're all about loving ourselves, what happens? We end up with this struggle of malice and envy of being hated and hating one another. We were once that. But in God's grace, he has come to us. The next three verses, four, five, six, and seven, four verses, um, is one long sentence in the Greek. But when the kindness, but, when the kindness of, and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. God's kindness and love appears. It's because of that and his mercy toward us that we are not what we once were. And it's because of God's mercy that people who live like that may no longer live like that and they may be transformed too by the power of the gospel. I'm not bashing the NIV here, but it misses the sense of the word love in this and with the form of the language used, when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared. The word is philanthropos. And instantly you're doing the link with philanthropy. It's love for humanity. That's the sense of the word. When the kindness of God and his love for humanity appeared, he saved us. God loves us. And he has come to save us from our self-love our philautos, so that we might be then people who are characterized by philanthropos too. His love that reaches out to other people. He says that this kindness and this love for humanity appeared. And of course he's speaking about the Lord Jesus and it takes you back up into chapter 2 and verse 11 onwards. For the grace of God has appeared. It's Paul's other recurring theme in Titus of, of God's appearing his grace appearing. 
His love and his kindness, his love for humanity appearing. It appears, why? Because it appears in the person of Jesus Christ. The eternal God who takes on humanity. That he might live a righteous and perfect life. And that he might give himself as an atoning sacrifice for sinners. And that he would be raised from the dead and exalted to the highest place. And has promised that he's coming back. That's the good news of the gospel. Because he has done that, he saved us. What did he save us from? He saved us from the foolishness, the disobedience, the deception and the slavery to sin. That manifests itself in the behaviours of malice and envy. Of being loathsome and hating others. He saves us from the low life, if we might say it. To enjoy the higher life of God. It's the heavenly life. But notice what Paul stresses. That it's not because there was anything inherently good in us at all. It's not because of anything we've done. And look on us and love us because we were better than anybody else. Level playing field here. We're all loathsome sinners. But God in his mercy has come. And when he works in the life of an individual to make them aware of their sin and of the Savior, he takes that person and he says, I have you and you are mine forever. It's his mercy that does it. Jesus Matthew 1 verse 21, he will save his people from their sins. Praise God for his salvation and his mercy. And what is it described as? It's described as the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's this work of God the Spirit who will cause people to be born again, to give them life where there is death, so they can see the Savior, put their trust in him, which is a gift of God to be able to do that and then to live out the new life in the power of the Spirit who has given them this new existence. It's a washing. It's a cleansing. It's a renewal. It's a regeneration is the word. I've had big blue plumes of smoke coming out of the back of my car on occasions recently. And I asked the garage about it the other day when it was in for work on something else. Don't buy a Citroen. Um, and the guy says, well, that's just the, um, the, the diesel additive system doing its regeneration. And I went, oh, that's interesting, isn't it? So this regeneration is going on, and boy, can you see it. And the people behind me can smell it too. I'm still not convinced it's supposed to be doing that. But that's, it's just an example, isn't it? There's a regeneration process, and it has an evidence. should be seen in us as well. The Holy Spirit poured out on us from God. Think of Acts 2 and the day of Pentecost when... What the Lord Jesus had promised became a reality. And God the Holy Spirit comes in his people. God pours it into us himself. So that we might live this new life. Transformed and able to live in a way that is glorious. Because we know that we are justified. Not on the basis of our righteousness. We don't go around with a condemning attitude. Well I'm better than you. And God is going to reward me for this. No. Let me tell you about how I know God. And I know God accepts me. God accepts me in the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for me on the cross. It's the only basis. And you can trust him too. And what's the outworking of that? Not only in the life of the believer. It, there's a reality that then shapes. And we thought about this in the remembrance this morning. It's having a, a heavenly attitude to life. Because we're heirs. As God's children. Having the hope of eternal life. The life that God 
has given to us is eternal and can't be taken from us. And what God has described of that which is to come is coming. And we can share it with others. And you can't do that if you've been an inconsiderate nincompoop. And you, you, you just always, I'm um, struggling for my words here, just rubbing people the wrong way. How on earth can we commend ourselves to others and for the gospel? You remember back up in the section earlier that was to do with people in the workplace. It was adorning the gospel of Christ. That's what we're to do. Our lives as jewels, in a sense, taken and crafted by God are brought. And alongside the glorious story of the message, you can say, this is not of me. This is all of God. And it's far from perfect, but God is doing a work in me that will never, never be stopped until the time when God says, you come to me and enjoy my presence for eternity. Courteous Christians who clarify and adorn the gospel. Let's pray.